0: Hey, hey, and welcome to the Rhythm Changes Podcast. I'm your host, Will Chernoff, and this episode is sponsored by the free weekly email at rhythmchanges.ca. That's where I write to you every Tuesday morning, send you an artist event or recording from our local scene for you to enjoy and share. We're on our way to a thousand people getting the free weekly email every single week. So if you're listening and haven't signed up yet, now is absolutely the time. We're going to have an awesome 2024 together. Sign up now at rhythmchanges.ca and get the free weekly email. And I will write to you every Tuesday. There really are like, in my opinion,
1: the four A's is the way to judge whether a night is good. Attendance, atmosphere. Obviously there's artistry if the band is good. And the other surprise, surprise is alcohol sales because that's (laughs) that's how we survive.
0: All right, we are back with another new episode, this being the last one of 2023. It's been an awesome year with you here on the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, we have another venue booker. I've always enjoyed talking to the people who book the music at our venues in town. This is one of the most active ones. You could say it's one of the big three or four venues right now, but there's so much I don't know about the organizer of this venue's story. So bringing my conversation with him up next. Our guest today is a guitarist, singer, songwriter, actor, venue booker, leader of the Seven Tyrants Theater Society, where they present above the historic Penthouse Nightclub at Tyrant Studios. So please welcome to the Rhythm Changes podcast, Daniel Dirksen. Hey, hey. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for inviting me to do this. Thank you for coming. The timing Mm. is awesome because I played at Tyrant just less than... About 12 hours ago. About 12 hours ago, yeah. Yeah, Which is is pretty cool to be talking to you again right after that. So I had a fun time. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. It was a great show. (laughs) If I think back to the first time I ever set foot in Tyrant, it was, I think, January 2020. So this is before COVID. It's not the very, very beginnings of Tyrant, which I kind of want to learn more about. I realized how little I know about that. Oh, yeah. But that was the first time... I played there and it was the first time I was there at that time we played the Friday jazz series that you still have today yeah. was that the only night of music that you were presenting at Tyrant at the time was it a once a week thing on Fridays yes yeah well yeah. now how many nights a week are you doing of all kinds of entertainment
1: now we're three nights a week regularly but we also have other stuff going on more irregularly. So
0: well congratulations to uh, that. Hey, <laughs> cheers <whatever>. to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cheers to
1: that. Hey, we'll keep uh we'll keep trying to grow as uh trying to go and trying to grow as long as we can. Uh that was uh was that for Bill's show?
0: No, that Bill's show, this is the late Bill Moisey who is uh an How we icon, met, anyway, in, in the the extended universe of Dan that, yeah, that yeah. I've come to know here. <laughs> but and we met because of Bill. Yeah. But this was the first time I just went to the space tyrant itself. Oh, I, I see. recall the the very first time I met you was actually at uh my old rehearsal space, which was my mom's garage in New West. You and Bill came out there, yeah. and you like auditioned me. Yeah. For his band, do you remember that?
1: Yes, I totally <laughs> yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, I remember that because I remember that um, I remember we were looking for a bass player for that uh, project, and uh, I think I think some of both of our leads came up with nothing, but we had um, uh, Gabrielle on that show already, and right. he was like, "Oh no, you should uh, reach out to my friend Will." So yeah, we went and did that. And What I remember most about that is that like you know you very quickly picked up the essence of all the material, but also I can remember you saying like this this is not uh, one of the songs was not in a440 or whatever right like you were like is this oh. is this in c sharp or is it in d i can't remember but we had recorded this demo for one of the tunes and somehow we didn't discover till after the recording session that the tuner had been set to like oh a450 something yeah so we were playing like so like every time <laughs> we you know you try and play along to that song it's always like why is this recording sharp yeah um, anyway and you had picked that up by ear and i, I remember uh bill being immediately impressed by that <laughs> so there you go
0: that was the very yeah, that was the very first time we met yeah it was for a, a project that bill was doing and you were working on with him at the seashell arts festival this was yeah. in the fall of 2019 so this was just before i played at tyrant for the first time That was the first time i encountered you it yeah. was around that music and then i came up to Tyrant and played there. You were doing music one night a week. Tyrant had already been around for a year, year and a half at that point in that kind of state. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, but pretty much a year and a half. Tyrant um, officially opened as Tyrant Studios in May of 2018. Okay. And uh, we opened um, uh, under that name at that time, after we had already been sort of in residency in that and kind of had, you know, Uh, begun the renovations and transformations that upstairs space to be a little bit like an arts hub. Um, and we sort of launched it that may, and we had, um, we actually did have three nights a week briefly at the very beginning because we, we tried out a regular Sunday night where we had, um, uh, Kurt who, you know, often works at Tyrant these days and one of our kind of founding producers, um, Uh, I'd kind of spearheaded a bit of an open mic night kind of thing that was around that first summer as well. So I guess technically there was sort of another music night. But what we kind of started it off with was uh, Friday jazz, Saturday comedy, and then this kind of weird Sunday open mic thing. And uh, the Sunday thing didn't really last through that first summer. Um, But the Friday-Saturday things just kind of became... Became the regular programming. Um, And my uh, other founding uh, co producer, David, uh, he had sort of, you know, we went to theater school together and uh, started this uh, theater company out of theater school. And um, ultimately, it was kind of, you know, us and this company that basically ended up uh, putting Tyrant Studios together. Um, And as you mentioned, our theater company is called Seven Tyrants Theater Society. And so, you know, big surprise, that's where you get the Tyrant Studios name. Yeah, it's a nonprofit,
0: um, right? Yep, yeah, nonprofit.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, just a just your typical sort of small theater company, uh, small arts society. Uh, but we are an award winning company. We produce a bunch of plays, and a lot of them original plays over the years um, since we got out of theater school. And a lot of it by the time the kind of twenty early twenty teens had uh, um, arrived we had started not exclusively but we had started um, you know a a bunch of work that was kind of site specific we were doing a lot of found venue work I think in some ways it's still kind of in vogue um, in the in the sort of local theater universe but uh, for a little while there in the kind of early 2010s kind of thing there was like a real fashion for this sort of site-specific work and people were exploring doing plays at different parks and different odd places and we were kind of definitely sort of part of that wave for a little while we did a lot of work out of the classical chinese garden in chinatown science world you know places like that and we ended up um stumbling uh across the venue that's now tyrant i knew the previous manager there we had worked together at the vogue theater back in the day um, and so we would, uh, rent the upstairs, what's now Tyrant, which was, I kid you not, just like empty. There was nothing in there but boxes and cobwebs and a few old chairs. And, uh, we would rent it for rehearsal space, you know, the sort of back oh, room that's yeah. now our bar room was just sort of a big empty room. And we could kind of like, uh, you know, it could be a pretty adequate rehearsal room to rehearse plays in. And, uh, it was, uh, the, you know, the price was right as well kind of thing. So, and then in, uh, Towards the end of 2017, we had um, decided that we wanted to uh, do a production that year, but we didn't really have a lot of funding, we didn't really have a whole lot in the company coffers, we didn't want to let a year go by before we had um, another production, so uh, we concocted this idea, it was actually my co-producer David who found this play that he really liked uh, called A Steady Rain, which was kind of made famous on Broadway because the original production had... um, I believe it was uh, Hugh Jackman and Daniel Craig in it. And if you look online, there's this weird viral video that came out of that original production because one of these plays where the actors kind of talk to the audience in character and they're kind of like, you know, this is what happened to us and this is what... And then they kind of act out some scenes, but there's a lot of breaking the fourth wall, talking right to the audience and kind of the character and they're sort of playing these kind of rough Chicago cops kind of thing. And at one point in one of the New York uh, productions of that... Um, somebody's cell phone went off in the audience, and so there's a kind of there was a viral clip for a little while of Hugh Jackman like totally unloading on one audience member oh. for their uh, oh. cell phone going off in the performance. Oh boy! But it was basically because he was in character as this cop. You know what I mean? Anyway, that play um, uh, did really well on Broadway and stuff, and we decided to stage uh, a version of it and play the roles ourselves. And we hadn't been on stage together in years we've been doing mostly like producing music directing directing the plays a lot of occasionally appearing on stage but not really together so it was this interesting thing where we were like okay it's like a two-hander play you know we'll get together we'll play the roles of these two cops which has also got a bit of a, uh, I don't know, what do you call that? Mutton Jeff kind of thing going on. Cause my, my co-producer David is like a big guy. Like he's a tall, oh. tall guy. And like, <laughs> I don't know if anyone listening has not seen me, but I'm not a tall guy. Um, uh, so it's like, we had this kind of neat sort of dynamic that was a little bit, you know, hysterical in its own way in the midst of this dark play of these two, these, these, these two kind of partners uh, on the force that were very physically quite different. And then once again, Kurt was in there as a kind of providing a live uh, soundtrack to that. He played the saxophone and the piano um, as kind of like a live musical accompaniment to this play. And this was our idea. And we kind of thought, well, you know, geez, what if we tried to find a found space for this play? Because again, that would save us a little bit of money. And we thought, hey, what the hell? Why don't we try and like, you know, uh, use this space we've been using as rehearsal space to put up the play? So we approached um, uh, the manager and the, uh, and the Filiponis about it, and they were totally game. And so that was what kind of happened in very early 2018. You know, it was like a January production or something. We um, uh, put up this play. We put like a bunch of kind of risers in the back room where our bar now is. And basically where our bar now is was kind of the stage, you know. It was a pretty pretty small, simple set kind of thing. And I uh, put up some theater lights and some curtains and basically made that back room into a little black box theater. And then the front area that's now kind of where everyone sees the jazz and, and comedy shows uh, kind of became like the lobby, basically. And, you know, we used to have that little bar in the corner, so There was kind of like a corner bar and a bit of a lobby waiting room and then you could go into the mini theater you know which could only seat about 35 40 people right uh and then we put on this play and it was kind of a runaway success we really didn't expect it but it was a bit of a runaway success and it's partly because it was a good play and i think we did did a good job of it um and also because you know there was something about us staging it in the penthouse that just you know if anybody's used to trying to promote Projects, to artistic projects, shows, or whatever in Vancouver, you know, you might know, might be this way in every city, but it it's definitely this way in Vancouver where you gotta find some kind of hook, you know, that the media can use. And in that case, it was like, wow, was, you know, this was pretty obvious what the hook was, which is that we were bringing this entertainment back to this like sort of forgotten about, in unused space above the penthouse and so like we got a lot of cbc attention and stuff like that and we literally had you know bringing the cbc you know kind of cbc radio through the place i mean we like well now we're going up the stairs that you know uh sammy davis jr used to go up or whatever you know it was like the early days of the name dropping that everybody's you know uh, used to me doing kind of thing every single week now um and so that production was runaway hit I actually won an award as well and so we basically were able to kind of parlay that into the idea of well you know this is kind of good don't you think like this was kind of unused why don't we sort of like bring some arts back to the space what do you think about that and uh and the um Family that runs the club were absolutely game for it. So, and they were also game for us picking the name Tyrant Studios, which we thought was funny. I'm, I'm, I'm looking again. The listeners can't see, but I'm literally looking at a skull yeah, on <laughs> <laughs> a nice display skull on Will's uh, side table here. Which I'm like, you didn't steal that from Tyrant. That no, yeah, is yeah.
0: <laughs> Vez's skull. We call him Yorick. Oh, okay, She's got there the Shakespearean go. name. I, I, I can't. I can never remember if your skull at Tyrant that sits on the piano has a name though no nah, you know a lot of people just call it scully
1: but you know I'm, i don't remember the name but it is the last uh musician yeah. that left a drink on the piano so yeah
0: i'm sorry i should have pretended that i put that there as a prop just for huh. you
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> we've got a nice little toque i'll be bringing out the santa hat for ours pretty soon so yeah
0: yeah we dress him up too yeah yeah <laughs> you mentioned the name dropping that you do every time this is like a speech that you do as part of your emceeing at tyrant on on most shows that if you go you will hear and you always get very animated and you make the most (laughs) of that spot that's for sure to talk about all the legendary jazz performers and people who have come through that venue owned by the filiphone family in vancouver for Mm -hmm. decades and decades and the the spot for its entire history which would go back like a century right yeah basically yeah yeah we're coming up on yeah so Somebody asked me if I could get you to read the speech on the show here, but no. <laughs> oh, uh, well,
1: I can't read the speech because it's different every Cause night. You, Cause yeah. you make it
0: up every time. Yeah. Um, you, you have your things that you stick to, but yeah, you, yeah, you enjoy right. the process of improvising that every time I know.
1: A little bit. Well, there's so much to draw on. I mean, the story of the um, Filippone family in the penthouse is a really interesting story um, in the context of, you know, uh, Vancouver, you know, modern sort of, colonial city to kind of Vancouver history uh, because in a lot of ways it kind of you know uh, spans the history of this pretty young city again in a sort of modern western world sense Um, and you know that family originally came from uh, southern Italy in Calabria and they ended up in the Dunsmuir mines on Vancouver Island uh, which is a whole interesting study to be done too because there were people that came from all over the world to work in these Dunsmuir coal mines on Vancouver Island right and so you had people like you know, a lot of the Philipponi sons ended up with Welsh names because a lot of the co-miners in the mines were Welsh. And, you know, so there was Italians and Welsh and you know, people coming from all these parts of the world looking for some way up for their family in the future of their family kind of deal. Um, and. Uh, Eventually, the family moved to Vancouver, and it was basically by that point the sons, who were pretty much teenagers at that point, if I've if I've got that right, you know, we're, we are talking the twenties. So, you're right, it's about a about a century ago, basically started a delivery business, Eagle Time Delivery, and uh, um, famously, it was a, um, a Joe uh, Filipponi, kind of lead brother, who's you know pictured on our uh, on our on our old bar back there, still a big photo of him in Time Studios. Who uh, had the leg up on all the other local delivery businesses because he bought a motorcycle in the kind of early mm-hmm. days of motorcycles. So everybody else had, you know, bicycles for the local delivery and Eagle Time had the motorcycle. So zoop, they could get it there, you know, the fastest. And back in those days, at least in our town, uh, uh, delivery was the same as a taxi company. So they were doing everything from delivering newspapers, packages, you know, anything you'd have in a purer sense nowadays, but also basically being a taxi company. And that's kind of how they, sort of built that up and bought, you know, the the building that's now the sort of floor level of the penthouse nightclub, um, to be the base of operations for Eagle Time Delivery. And then you kind of go, you know, fast forward a little bit later until we're into the uh, into the 30s and into the 40s. Um, Joe decided to uh, build himself a, an apartment on top of the eagle time delivery now the family home was just next door right now you often say that in my speech and you can see it's one of the only basically on that stretch of seymour it's the only still surviving little you know peak roofed home but all of seymour street looked like that back in the day kind yeah. of thing except for a few kind of garage type type uh, businesses and pretty much everywhere was like single story or kind of story and a half in height type of deal but he built this penthouse apartment on top of the um Of the Eagle Time Delivery, which is now where we have uh, Tyrant Studios. And it was basically like he, you know, he essentially was running a nightclub out of his living room. (laughs) And, you know, like you would do things like, hey, you know, you go there and bring your own booze, basically, and go hang out. And he would be saying, oh, I'm just having private parties with my friends. But then he would, you know, sell you like ice or seven up at an inflated price you know what I mean and and if you forgot your booze oh maybe there was a little bit in the back kind of thing he could sell you to um, but obviously like you know the police weren't stupid and they knew what was going on and so they would raid the place and this became kind of a regular occurrence throughout the 40s so at some point in you know 1946 if I've got that right, Um, There was a a big raid on Joe's penthouse, and that was the headline that made the newspapers the next day, Raid on Joe's Penthouse. And that was the family's way of kind of turning it around on the media and the cops was just to name their nightclub the penthouse. So you could say that where we are upstairs at Tyrant, which again was like unused and forgotten about for decades, is basically, you know, where the penthouse uh, actually got its name. Yeah, um, there's a, you know, you can look more into this, but there's a sort of a really interesting history in Vancouver when it comes to um, booze, basically, because like the whole city was pretty much founded around a saloon. If you go down and, you know, into Gastown, you talk about good old gassy jack saloon and stuff like that, right? This is basically like in these early logging days. It was just the whole town is founded around a watering hole, you know? Yeah. But uh, once you got out of the First World War, there was sort of like um, uh, attempts to basically, you know, uh, impose a kind of teetotaling aesthetic in this town, right? They had a bit of a failed experiment with kind of a proper prohibition around the... First World War times, but then their solution, as I understand it, was to effectively like try, you know, by way of laws to divorce fun from alcohol consumption in a kind of systemic way. Huh. And so for a long time in Vancouver, you couldn't exactly just as like a proprietor wanting to start a private business, get a liquor license. They weren't, they weren't really available to be applied for. They were very, very, um, uh, sort of carefully doled out kind of thing a couple of the hotels were allowed to have I guess what we would now call cocktail bars and then otherwise you could only drink in these places called beer parlors beer bars, and they were like basically like by design, no fun drinking joints, and a lot of them were kind of in and around you know what what would now be the downtown east side kind of thing these kind of bars with no windows. You know, uh, they had, um, as I understand it, two entrances always, because there was the men only entrance and woman accompanied by a man entrance, you Mm -hmm. know, so couldn't go in there as a woman on your own. With the exception of a few sort of ladies of the evening who would you know, be allowed to be, be waiting in there to drum up some business kind of thing. Uh, there was no fun allowed, though. You couldn't sing. You couldn't dance. There was no music in there. There was no darts. There was no pool. There was you couldn't even belly up to the bar. So basically all you could do legally at an actual drinking hole in Vancouver for decades was just like go get a beer in silence go drink it in silence. And then if you wanted to go have fun at an actual other venue, you had to go to these supper clubs, right? Which would be like, yeah, there'd be burlesque and stuff going on there, but they were um, not drinking joints. You know, there was no, not legally allowed to sell booze. So go somewhere else to dance and party where you couldn't drink kind of thing. And that was how the city was kind of trying to do this. So anyway, it's sort of rambling, but basically what happened as a result is that there was a real speakeasy culture in this town, even though it wasn't for the same reasons as when you had prohibition in the U.S. kind of thing. And, uh, um, you know, so there were numerous of these places that were basically just, you know, bars operating out of people's attics and basements. And the penthouse became by far the most famous of them for two main reasons and one is that they were open later than everywhere else in the early days like open till like five six in the morning so wherever you were you knew you could go to the penthouse afterwards kind of no matter what what time of the uh night or early hours it was and then the other reason is maybe more connected to what we do which is that you know the filiponies were very connected with the music scene and the touring music scene at the time and so it also became the place where you could go to you know um rub shoulders with frank sinatra or possibly even see uh, sammy davis jr get on the stage and you know sing you a tune kind of deal
0: yeah does it ever strike you that right now if you look at the jazz community in vancouver or whatever you would call any of the groups of people that we spend our time with even where it doesn't overlap the people that you know in the creative community too Uh, Maybe you do have some other examples like this, but if I think of the jazz venues like Frankie's right now or Second Floor Gastown right now or other spaces like that, it's like where you are and what you have at Tyrant versus some of these other places like you are an ambassador of like a tradition, a historic place that is rich with tradition that is relevant to this community. And you really own that role you know, the history, you love the history and you talk about it.
1: <laughs> well, I do love the history and that's like, a maybe that's a neat way of thinking about it. Um, and, uh, you know, I suppose that is the case and that, you know, I would have to to take that on like uh, what it only makes, you know, we, we tried to seize the opportunity of, um, of, uh, Producing work there because we just thought it'd be, you know, no matter what, it's just always cool to have more art spaces in town. But yes, when you've got a space that has all of that history, you sort of feel like, wow, that's a real shame if that wasn't still going, you know? And from the perspective of the penthouse, it's been like, you know, one of the most successful things I think that uh, they've done with their branding over the last 10, 15 years has been to draw more focus towards that history.
0: Yeah, it makes me fired up to like one day have music at the Patricia again, right? Like mm, that's one yeah. of the only other examples of a place that has like a history that long or even longer where, you know, you have the connection with Jelly Roll Morton having been in residence there in the past and now we don't have jazz there, but we did for a while. No
1: kidding, yeah. No, that's a that's a that's a perfect example. And a lot of the other places are gone too. You know, there's a big new um Painting that we just hung in the back room that my aunt actually did um, uh, of an, another old venue in town that was around in the seventies and such called Fort Boogie down on East Hastings there. And like, it's literally a parking lot now, you know? So a lot yeah. of these places, a lot of the, you know, big places, um, places that the the big artists would perform at in town um, are totally bulldozed now. You know, a lot of them were, um, there was kind of a district that was also kind of around Burrard and, Robson kind of thing, you know, in that area, just coming up the hill from, from, you know, Burrard Station kind of thing. And obviously all that was flattened, you know, to make way for the Bentall Center and the more modern stuff around that area kind of thing, you know. So a lot of the old music clubs that we did have, even when, you know, Vancouver was like the neon capital of the world and this kind of stuff in those kind of those that brief period, you know, late 50s into the 60s kind of thing um are gone are like actually physically gone so yeah a few places that we have we ought to ought to you know find a way to uh find a way to celebrate it i don't know i mean i think that that's i i think that the um I actually genuinely, like, I don't just say this out of diplomacy. I genuinely uh, love all the jazz venues that we have in town. I think it's, you know, Vancouver doesn't really have a kind of like French corridor thing, right? Like you can't like come to Vancouver and be like, oh man, I'm in the jazz district. And you're just like <laughs> walking with your beer from one place to another kind of thing. Like, yes, we don't have that. yeah. And so it is one of those cities where, you know, uh, artistically you, you sort of got to be a bit in the know. You got to have someone to tell you like, oh, well, here's the places to check out, you know? But all of the venues are like um fantastic in their own ways, and they really are you know a place like uh like the Water Street Cafe is a fantastic listening room, and um you know when you go to uh, places like Havana, you know there's they've got a place like Frankie's, you know it's really that that kind of dinner jazz club is also a big part of like uh you know live jazz experience having that kind of venue as well and so I feel like you know, yeah, we can sort of name drop when it comes to some of the history because we happen to be, you know, um, upstairs in the in the penthouse. But everywhere that is providing jazz in this town um, is also providing, you know, the the atmosphere of all of these places do have their own perks, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess sometimes maybe it depends just what you're in the mood for or whether you feel like a certain act is well suited to that room you know
0: yeah now that you've been doing bookings in this jazz community at tyrant for the past five years do any times come to mind in particular where you booked somebody there at tyrant to play a show and they just completely surprised you and blew you away and like you had never heard this person play before this group play before and you were like wow i knew i wanted to do this because i said yes to this but then somebody came down and they played and the show just blew you away in terms of what they brought to the table and and how it was like i'm curious about that sort of thing you know uh
1: something's come to to mine, there, um one that immediately comes to mind was uh you know what were we it was this was uh, definitely post-pandemic but it was like just kind of post-pandemic when we were reopening i think where there was a december show there that was a show that todd stewart put on like mm-hmm. he was he was the one i gave the date to kind of thing he was like oh i've got this you know really interesting band in mind um and um I I want to make sure I get this right. I think it was, think it was Dan Howard on the bass, Uh, but it was definitely Noah um, uh, French Nolan on the piano who I hadn't really heard, but was sort of a little bit aware of, Oh, you know, this this guys from back in town kind of thing. And uh, Faven Kadani, And that Mm -hmm. was, I also hadn't heard Faven. I think Faven was just getting out of school maybe at the time kind of thing, right? Uh Oh no, no, there's a great, great trumpet player. I really want to, really want to bring him to the room. Uh, So that show happened. And, uh, that show is like is still it definitely is still amongst you know maybe my top five or six shows that uh, that I've booked there there was something about that quartet they chose really good music in my opinion and they played really well like it was one of those you know I think it was really the first major time anyway that I'd seen Noah play and I was just like you know had my face completely melted <laughs> kind of thing <laughs> Um, but I loved that show, and it was, like, a super busy room, and there was a really, like, um, great vibe in the room, and it was one of those nights where – I've joked about this before, and I know it's, like, sort of – feel, it feels sort of, like, maybe absurd and nerdy or something like that, but there really are, like, in my opinion, the four A's is the way to judge whether a night is good. It's, like, are you going to get a score of four A's out of out of A's or whatever kind of thing? Um, and there's, there's, they basically uh, amount to attendance. That's one factor. Um, yeah, if there's good attendance, that's always great, but you know, it doesn't necessarily make or break whether a show is good. There's atmosphere because that's not exactly the same as attendance. You know, for some reason, sometimes you can get a busy room where just, I don't know, the atmosphere is not totally gelling and you get a slightly less busy room, but like everybody's just totally game for that show. So the two of those are not, are often, work together right they often sort of come as a as a package but they're not exactly the same thing obviously there's artistry is what i consider one of the a's as well which is like you know when just whatever if the show if the band is good and the other surprise, surprise is alcohol sales because that's, <laughs> that's how we survive. So, you know, if you get all four of those, then like, boom, it's like it's that you got all four bases. It's a home run. Yeah. You know, you're all the way around kind of thing. Um, and a lot of shows will like hit three out of, out of four. You know what I mean? It's like what what three out of four it is. I'm not sure. Right. We can get shows that like great atmosphere. Great attendance, great alcohol sales, and it's like, wow, what could be wrong with this show? Well, frankly, I actually didn't really like the band that much, you know, that kind of thing. So it's like the artistry was the one thing that like mm-hmm. didn't actually rise to the top, um, and so you know, there's often one of those missing, if not two of those missing, kind of thing. And uh, if you can hit all four of those, then you really get a night where people are like, dang, like, yeah. oh, I want to be here again sometime, you know? So there's been, there's definitely been, you know, um, uh, plenty of those. Uh, um, uh, and it's more like, it's been more rare that I've been distinctly disappointed in a show. And yeah, I'm not going to go to the point of <laughs> <laughs> naming yeah. any names there. But like, it, you know, certainly has happened when you book someone and you're kind of like, oh man, like there's there's little things where you're just kind of like, really? Like you didn't, you know, okay. I I get that it's jazz, especially if you're playing standards, and I get that if you're really good enough, you know, you might not need to rehearse. But sometimes people who don't think they need to rehearse with a group do need to rehearse with a group. Then they show up and play a show and you're like, Yeah, okay guys, you know what would have made that show good? If you rehearsed, you know. So you get these little things that happen every once in a while where you're like, come on, you know, like, I know we're not like, uh, we're not, you know, Madison Square Garden, but you could at least like, you know, you could at least uh, behave like this was an opportunity and you want to make good on that opportunity, you know, but um, that's more rare, you know, and, uh, and we'll see, I'll think there might be more um, shows that pop into my mind, but that was, um, that was the first one that popped into my mind because it always sort of defines to me a night that I didn't really know what to expect, you know? I just yeah. knew that I liked Todd's drumming and I wanted to give him a shot. And he was like, no, I got a clear vision of what I want for this show. And uh, and thus it still kind of lives in my head as one of those ones that just kind of like manifested and rose out of the water and hit all those four A's, as it
0: were. And uh, yeah. So if that was a quad A show, maybe more about expectations than actual results because actual results may vary that's i'm sure one of the things that you learn if you book a venue for that number of years and beyond but what is what's your expectation you don't have to think about it too much but like if you were to say a percent x percent of shows are gonna be those quad a rare awesome shows like how low is that number is it five percent is it ten percent like what's your baseline expectation of how rare that is
1: i don't know it might be something like that might be
0: something like ten percent you know so because you present now like you know two or three times a week at a minimum yeah that means it's like less than once a month kind of thing
1: um ah interesting well maybe the percentage is wrong i think yeah i don't know you know it's almost like (laughs) it's almost like you need it's almost like you start to need a new category you know you start to get like the quad a quad a plus you know i mean (laughs) (laughs) you get somewhere it's like really hitting it out of the park kind of thing
0: yeah
1: um you know it's not only a home run but a home run that you know the newspapers talk about the next day so maybe there's a whole other category that gets down into just like you know five percent of those shows and Um, I don't know I think if we're all you know honest as as bookers and stuff it probably is for those really special shows um, something like that because Yeah. yeah there's that last little It's that one that one a that's the atmosphere thing like that's just this like that's just this little thing and you just don't know it until you know it's the what it's the magic of live entertainment is that you just can't can't get it without it being ephemeral in the moment and, you know, you can't know whether it's been gotten until you're actually there experiencing it. Yeah. But I do think it's more than that. Like nowadays we're, um you know, things are a little bit different in terms of the uh, scope of programming. So I've been able to bring in um things that are uh departing a little bit more from jazz, even, if, you know, even though um I've always got to make sure they fit the vibe and the just sound levels and stuff in the room. But especially on Saturdays uh, which is now a regular music night I'm able to do things like a lot of you know Latin dance nights and stuff and a lot of those a lot of those will rise to that top there's some just fantastic you know Latin bands in town and that was all started by Amphibious you know those 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 folks are uh, fantastic but that was kind of like a early idea that actually Chundan, who you know I still hire to uh, play in my band I've got this this Brazilian band I play in And that was one of those where it was like, you know, sort of redefines the scope of things. You're like, well, we're definitely doing this again, you know, (laughs) and uh, it's hard to think of one of those nights that's been, you know, less than a quad A achievement, you know, those guys are always, uh, always fantastic nights. So, so maybe, you know, maybe uh, that's like, maybe it's all kind of folded in, in a way that like, as I'm sort of. Trying new things and seeing what uh, is, um, you know, what uh, different type of programming that I can bring into the room just
0: opens up more opportunity for people to hit
1: home runs, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, the reason why I focus on it is definitely not to say that the other shows aren't good because they are. Even if those ones are rare, the other shows can all still be very good and there can still be a very high level of programming. The reason why I focused on it for sure is because. If you're listening as an artist, uh, I wouldn't want you to do what I would be inclined to do, which would be to like beat yourself up if you didn't do that on any given show of yours. Because it's almost like part of getting a show out and completing a show to that standard is like beyond your control to some extent. Like you can prepare for it. But it's you. like you can't, you can't put the blame on yourself if you feel like your last show wasn't that good because it it is rare right it's like it can still Mm. be really good and those those ones can still be super rare because you can remember from your own playing history like which year shows felt amazing on all levels and stuff so that's why i'm thinking about it yeah absolutely no that's that's a that's a really good point to bring up and i think that yeah
1: if anybody's like i i i think about it sometimes when i see people you know make i think errors of judgment or whatever in some in, in in things they want to bring into the space or how they brought them in. And I just try and think of myself as a, as a younger musician, you know, I, I made, I think a lot of mistakes just being excited and this kind of thing. Right. And I, and I look back on it. And so, yes, like if I'm, you know, old enough now to be dispensing wisdom, which, you know, I feel like I'm getting old, but some people might not say I'm old enough to be wise. Uh, <laughs> but, it, you know, is that, you know, you want to we want to be cautious about a couple of things. Like these are the things that I would I would, you know, tell young folks, like don't overbook your bands. That's a that's the biggest lesson of local em- entertainment. And we can all feel like, you know, ah, damn, like, you know, i Uh, it like it really sucks because I want to be playing every single weekend and I just want to be playing and I want people to see this band and I want to you know this kind of but it's like they're not you know you don't have the fan base you know you're you know you're not Taylor Swift you're not Five Alarm Funk you're not going to be you know packing out these um, these venues so you know if you're if you're playing with a group like more You know, as a jazz musician or as like a singer songwriter type and you're trying to play more than once a month and like, yeah, you've really got your work cut out for you to be bringing people out to those shows and like don't be stupid like in a lot of ways you know venues are a one strike you're out I don't know I don't even watch baseball yet and we've got these all these baseball metaphors going the baseball the ball. We'll be hitting around the bases there um, but uh, you know that's pretty much like don't it's a one strike you're out often with these venues you know and if you go and you're like oh thanks for booking us and like five people show up or something like that then it's like why would they give you even a second chance you know so you don't even really get a three strikes you're out you, know, you might have to wait like a whole year and then you kind of come back with your But between your legs to this person and like, hey, do you think you'd give me another chance? So just don't be don't be stupid about that is what I would say. You know, don't be flagrant about that. You know, take that seriously. If you get, you know, if uh, <laughs> if you get the Monday night slot at Gilton Company, like call in your favors. You know, <laughs> yeah. bring out all your friends to that show, and then you'll get a Thursday. You know, that kind of thing, and uh, that has been the case you know there are there are some people who have asked me for second dates um at the venue and I haven't given it to them and uh it might be you know it'll be a mixture of those things like if you come in and deliver what to me is kind of a sloppy performance and then you also didn't bring people out then just like what are you thinking like it's you know
0: that's like we're talking about like a one out of four on your on your yeah yeah then you're talking basically probably about a one out of four kind of thing that's um
1: that's right so yes there's a lot that is beyond your control because sometimes who knows like it's like we're at a space now as a venue where we're starting to develop a bit of word of mouth thing and especially like the friday jazz brand is a bit of a meme that people can keep in the back of their mind and know that you know whatever they get out of a, something else they're doing downtown. It's like, oh, isn't there Friday? I think there's stuff going on over at Tyrant right there. Um, and so that grows, but you just don't know what that's going to mean. And so sometimes, you know, you've got everything planned and you're coming in for your show and you've done everything right. You know, you've invited all the people, you rehearse the band, blah, 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 blah. But also it happens to be a night that like, you know, a group of 10 at a work party or something that don't even know you decided to come take in Friday jazz or whatever. And for some reason they won't shut up or something like that. Like these things happen, you know what I mean? And so it isn't always your fault, but there are things that you can do. And, um, uh, you know, like, uh, again, to sound sort of grumpy old man about it, what I would say to like anyone starting out is like, don't be don't be sort of like cocky to the point that you're um that even though you don't think you are you're actually disrespecting the person who's given you the opportunity and that would mean things like as much as possible come in sounding rehearsed i'm not i don't i don't care if you rehearse like i'm not going to police that but you better sound rehearsed if you don't sound rehearsed like you know all of us who like but we just sit there like rolling our eyes at the back of the room kind of thing um. uh Take the time to do it, you know, if you can't get like a good band together, approach me and ask for a different date, you know, like, it's it's, it's it time passes quickly, you know, it's like, oh, we're not going to do January, we'll do March instead, but it'll be way better for all of us. That's way better for you, because you know, it's going to be 2027 before you know it, let alone March kind of thing. So try to make good on all of those things. And uh, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely better for everyone. And that's where it all kind of works too because when you're kind of being like, you know, obviously it's a whole thing too about whether you're, you know, uh, feel you're paid well for a gig. And it's one thing I was like, note about jazz musicians going through school. is like, yeah, you're learning this really, really great skill and you ought to be paid for it but if you've ever been part of an indie band like that's a whole other thing it's like entirely passion project so you know we're all like rehearsing every single monday so we can go out and make you know 40 bucks as a band playing on a five band bill you know what i mean Um, but it's because you're really trying to sort of push your own thing so if you want to also be like living up to the culture where it's like no 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 like i'm a i'm a primo musician you know i went to school for this and all this kind of thing, you you do have to deliver on the day. You know that's that's the one place where you ought to be. Uh, you ought to be meeting people more than halfway.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. It's a process that people all have come on different timelines to Sometimes it's hard to predict where somebody is at. Sometimes they're playing evolution of them as a player can be completely different from their social skills or their business skills or whatever you would call it and you kind of have to take all that as it comes because lots of people are reaching out to you all the time and trying to book things with you you know some of them maybe you don't know some of them at this point you probably know most so you're trying to make everybody happy but you're also trying to keep all this in mind and make sure that the standard of the music Keeps growing, which it feels like it does from what you're saying, because now you're presenting more often at Tyrant and the quality of the music is really good. So it's like, this is just something that you have to manage as you go, right?
1: Totally. And I, you know, the, the, it's, there's, um, the venue, uh, started out and, um, you know, uh, with people not knowing what it was. And so it's like, you know, there's a lot of, um, I think that we were able to give a lot of opportunity to a lot of young jazz musicians and comedians, you know, in the early days, because nobody knew the place existed. And so, you know, but it was a place that you could come and play. And, you know, some of those early Friday jazz things, right, there's like six people in the audience kind of thing. And that'd be like a good night type of deal, you know, so um, the early days, I think a lot about that because I'd like to be able to uh, keep um, as much as possible Tyrant as a place that's uh, continuing to offer opportunities to young musicians, musicians coming just out of school kind of thing. Um, But also, yeah, you know, the venue grows and it's like uh, you can be only as good as your last meal right there's that kind of thing like when you go out to a restaurant that you've always liked and for some reason that one day they didn't cook the meal properly like it be six months before you go back again or it might be a year before you go back again you know because that negative experience can wash away a number of positive experiences so it's not um uh, we don't quite have the luxury anymore to just put anything up without at least being concerned, invested in it being a good experience for our audience, you know. Um, and so I try to find that balance. That's why I tell people when they're reaching out to me for a date to, to reach out to me, you know, make sure they reach out to me because I will keep a list of people basically in order that they reached out to me. And so you're going to be in that list. But then when I'm ultimately trying to book the months there's other things that come into the programming equation. It's got to be, you know, okay, is this going to be a really good night? Does it seem to fit with, you know, the kind of, I don't know, a sort of uh, like some sense of variance in the programming that month, something like that. But I do still try to pay attention to people. And I definitely, um, you know, like uh, all those other things being equal, I'll give somebody who's, you know, young and established the same level of opportunity. That's one thing at our venue, you know. It's like it's going to be more about the actual like demos you can send me or the intriguing nature of the project if I think that it's got a good angle to cut through the noise of the other programming going on in the scene. That's way more important to me than how many years you've been in the scene, you know.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you what a a dream level goal that you have for a tyrant is like because of how much you've grown it already, like if it kept growing to the the nth degree of how you could imagine it to, where where could it go in the next couple of years? And like what what would it look like if you just put on your full optimism glasses and you think about the potential of it? Wow. I mean
1: Yeah. What would it look like? I guess just, I guess just more stuff, more people, you know, like it's when, when, when there's really good nights there, um, I feel like that's what I want to see the place as, right? It's, it's only so big. Um, So, like, yeah, you know, again, like, any sort of high-end restaurant or whatever, like, you want to basically get a place, to a place where you're regularly having to tell people, like, sorry, we don't have any room for you tonight, kind of thing, and then there's, like, really a, just a like a demand. For... Then you get the FOMO, right? Then <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Then you get the FOMO. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So it wouldn't like, I don't know, in terms of atmosphere or vibe, you know, it wouldn't be so different, but there'd be little things like, you know, could we expand to yet another night a week? Um, is there room for more earlier, late programming? Like I've done a bunch of little pilot projects and they work out or they don't because, you know, obviously there's a lot of unique things about our, our circumstance being inside the penthouse building and going through those same sort of front doors. So we have a lot of, you know, we have to, we have to schedule things a lot with their front door staff and this kind of thing. So these, there's these little, like there's these teeny little, you know, uh, inflection points or whatever you know cruxes kind of thing um devil's in the details um about that venue but it would be like the more that the venue can prove itself um uh the more that those things can sort of you know take care of themselves or make make their own argument for themselves so there's all sorts of little things like you know it'd be um just you know uh, better and better equipment, you know, stuff like that, you know, money to do better restoration work uh, more quickly on the piano, for instance, or, uh bring in just you know better, speaker and monitor stuff. Those are all like little details, but I would just love to see more of that stuff, you know, uh coming into place like, you know, I'm still at a place now where, you know, if the vocalist that night needs an extra wedge monitor, I've got to, you know, steal the speaker from the back room and <laughs> put reemploy it in the front, you know. So these are all little things or it's like some of the sconce lights on the side, you know, like the electrical wiring doesn't work anymore, so those are actually just little like battery operated things and like, you know, at least once a month i'm up there standing on a chair replacing batteries so that we can give the illusion of mood lighting to our customers you know (laughs) so it's little things like that that are maybe not all that interesting and that don't actually change too too much you know when when there's a good night at tyrant it is kind of how i see it in the future i just see more of that and fewer of the little like bugaboos that i have to deal with on the back end
0: yeah so in terms of the seven tyrants and the structure and the operations of Tyrant, do you still have your co-founder? Do you have a, a team with more people involved right now, is a lot of it has a lot of it focused on yourself? Who who's on your team right now in this era of of running Tyrant?
1: Yeah, the main team right now is still kind of like, you know, basically the core three producers from the early days. Um my uh co-artistic producer David is um uh dealt a lot more with the comedy in the early days and You know, basically has a young family now through the pandemic. So is not on the ground there as much for those two reasons. But he, you know, um, works a lot in sort of uh, computers and printing and stuff like that. And so he helps uh, a lot on the back end. Um, So that's... uh, um, uh, yeah, he's still involved, but it's a it's a different dynamic than pre-pandemic where it was Friday jazz, Saturday comedy. And so, mm. you know, there's the producing the venue stuff um, in the background, but then even on the ground presence, you know, on the nights, we would sort of be sharing that 50% and, you know, and the actual producing of the event that night. We'd be sort of doing, you know, I would do Friday, he would do Saturday kind of thing. That dynamic is a little bit different, but uh, he's still there and then Kurt as well Kurt sort of took some time away helping as a um as a a, a producer on the space um but has come back uh, recently to help out and we're at a place right now where you know just about every night that we're open we need more than just me as the one staff member kind of thing so um that's really helpful as well so it's basically the three of us that are kind of uh, keeping that going but there's a big partnership as well with um uh, you know, some of the uh, managers and staff like the penthouse. and us the, yeah they're they're super helpful in support of what we do. So we've got to be in contact with them about, you know, restocking the bar and stuff like that all the time. So if we didn't have good relationships with those folks, it would just, you know, we would just be like an irritant, you know, to them. <laughs> I mean are yeah. so like, I'm doing my job for the downstairs club. Why do I also have to help you kind of thing. Yeah. Um so that's really helpful. Pre pandemic, you know, we had um Cobra was our um our uh, bartender, right? And we couldn't have brought the space to life without cobra That's i do recall absolutely for sure um she's off um you know doing uh plenty of other stuff these days kind of thing since the pandemic um but uh that really helped to be able to also get that side of things and she left a legacy you know with some of the um uh some of the other uh, uh bartenders and bar staff as well kind of thing so um i don't know it's basically like those are the kind of four names that are gonna yeah are going to yeah, that are relevant or whatever that are going to that are uh, uh you know keep keep this whole thing going yeah
0: and then i'm curious also for you like in your day-to-day and your week-to-week and how you handle it like on a scale of one to tim reinert where you know you have like full-time <laughs> day job and you're also running the infidels to great success <laughs> it's yeah. like how are you handling it day-to-day what is your time look like that you have to put into it just like how does that side of it feel when it's a day in your life or a week in your life like what how does that work for you these days now that you're presenting like three nights a week and it isn't just like friday jazz i'm taking care of this one saturday comedy you're taking care of this one like how how are you managing it right now yeah
1: well i mean it's like a it's um it's a it's a uh bigger slice of my pie of work these days for sure it's a big chunk of the work that i do these days is is, is working for and i've got to spend work on it every day mm. um you know it obviously never ends every time you answer an email two more emails come in so it's um it it, it really is like a lot of that kind of correspondence stuff and then all the silly little things of Updating the website and stuff or whatever making a Facebook event like these things like take time even if you get it largely automated and so I can't It's really tough to go through a day without in some way putting work Let alone several hours of work into a tyrant and then sometimes you got to go actually work work the night as well, so um, you know, I'm a I'm a multidisciplinary performing artist by trade yeah like i'm a i'm an actor by training and you know also musician by training and through you know whatever like uh i guess i, I guess like just you know uh work and and uh insanity i don't know combined together over uh the years I, I i make it work i make my living in yeah, this grab bag of, you know, work to do with the performing arts. So, um, but I, I still have to do side hustle work too, you know, like yeah. especially during the pandemic when all, all my theater work got, um, shut down. I took on this, uh, uh, tour guide, uh, like historical tour guide job in Gastown. And I still do those, uh, pretty regularly cause it's, um, actually a pretty fun gig and especially during cruise ship season, it can pay pretty well. But um, so, you know, you're never going to get away with uh, if you're an actor, you know, and you got to have something equivalent to to a serving job, although I've uh, never actually worked in a restaurant. But I've done all sorts of that stuff over the years, working at museums and, you know, this kind of thing. But for a couple of years pre-pandemic, I had actually gotten into a groove where I was basically surviving entirely off artistic work but it had to be um, I had to make sure I got some good acting contracts that year which you know might take me out of town for several months and a lot of sound design work I would have to buttress that with Um, but nowadays like uh, yeah tyrant is a um, veritable actual job um, amongst it all and it has to be because yeah I've Especially with the way some of the the roles have shifted over the last little while, I am doing. I'm not trying to brag. I'm trying to figure out how to say this. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> bragging, but I am doing most of the work when it comes to our producing team, or whatever. So I've got to make sure that it's um, it's also a job. And yeah, I can also you know survive doing it, and it's not just free time.
0: Yeah, you went to UBC for acting, right? I did. Yeah. Now because that was a little while ago like i mean i went to cap a little while ago too so you know fair enough we're in the same boat uh i imagine it's kind of funny to think about like well for example if i think about going to cap um very little about going there other than meeting some key people um prepared me or matched in any way what i'm doing right now with rhythm changes or with even my playing or anything like that i imagine it's probably pretty similar for you like the 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 acting program that you did i probably prepared you in one or two specific ways for the vast variety of stuff that you've ended up doing from doing museum things and tours in gas town to you know presenting your venue but like the world of stuff that you've gone out and seen you could never have imagined when you were when you were studying there i bet if it's anything like how I look back on my experience at CAP for music.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. absolutely. Like basically what you're saying is you never thought that you'd be running the comprehensive gig list in town and <laughs> uh, a podcast or anything like that. That wasn't what you envisioned uh, all those years ago. In that yeah. case, yeah, it's similar. For I,
0: you. I didn't envision the component work that made it up is maybe mm. even more what I'm thinking. And maybe that would apply to you as well. Like the things that you have to do day-to-day for any of those things whether you're out doing contracts or whether you're doing tours in Gastown or whether you're doing the administration of Tyrant you know the and the component things of what I do like um producing audio or you know going to shows and writing about them and and listening to all this new music and and publishing about them and trying to curate all of that just like you know you would curate a venue almost it's like those things are all kind of emergent components of what you just described is like it has to end up as a job or it has to end up as work and it's like these are all things that have hit me you know as they come and I I, I wouldn't have predicted what they were at all or I wasn't prepared for them at all that's kind of what I'm thinking
1: yeah yeah well no kidding like there's the larger scale of it where I was like yeah I never I never thought I'd be you know, running a jazz venue in town one day, kind of thing. So there's that sort of larger version of it. But then also, yeah, like you know, I've never thought I'd be spending like regular significant parts of my time going out and buying replacement battery operated candles <laughs> or something. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> but those are important component, <laughs> you know, is. component things, right? Yeah. Um, that's also where I think that the that actually that like my theater training I think helps with some of this because like um, oh. uh, I think that a lot of what you do in a venue, um, in any kind of uh, um, artistic experience that people are going to appreciate um, is this kind of like sort of sleight of hand theater magic. You know, it is important, you know, how the curtains Hang behind the thing, you know. <laughs> I've always got this thing of like, you know, this like these teeny little like OCD things. I almost, I almost want to say, um, uh, you know, that that uh, that I can't let like, go of or whatever have are things like that, you know, like drummers will inevitably come into our space and like lean their drum bag against the back curtains and stuff like that. And it's like, well, yeah, totally. I don't care, you know, except that when it comes to performance time, I am going to be that guy that walks up and is like, hey, you know, can we just move that simple bag because the <laughs> curtain it's making the curtains not hang properly you know <laughs> somebody's gotta um, do it and then it's, and it always bugs me if i miss it you know what i mean and then like through the whole show there's this like little gap in the back curtain or something you know what i mean it's just kind of like no guys like <laughs> you can see the strings like no come on um well so there's little things like like that um that uh that 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 are important um and that's something that you sort of you know that's that that it is it that is the theater of the experience and i think that's something that you um uh you know learn in theater and uh it's like you get these these little things that you know people might not think about but they maybe contribute a bit our little weird um uh um like a stanchion you know uh this sort of red thing that sort of pseudo separates when you first walk in from where the seating is you know it's like I, I remember my co-producer day at one point I was like do we really need this for flow and stuff and my co-producer was basically like oh you know sometimes you just need a little showbiz you know and it's true sometimes you just need a little showbiz you know but you gotta you gotta pay attention to you know like everyone knows our skull which you know on, you're thinking about it. Mentioned your yeah right exactly. Here. It's your, your skull won't stop staring at me. So, um, but you know that was one of those things that um, our first Halloween in the space. We just had very few. We actually used to produce um, a pretty successful uh, haunted house out of the classical Chinese garden in Chinatown for a bunch of years. Oh. And uh, you know we had all these like skeletons and stuff uh, from that in our in our company storage. And so our first Halloween in the space, we brought some of that stuff out and just put it around around the venue and, you know, but we were trying to be sort of like slightly minimalist, you know, and tasteful as opposed to just like miles and miles of cotton batten webbing or whatever. And so we just like the one sort of most realistic skull that we had, we just kind of like stuck it on the piano, you know, and we're just kind of like, okay, there you go. And it never (laughs) left. And, uh, but it's one of those things where it's like, there's a, there's a spotlight on the skull, you know, and yeah, you need to have a spotlight on the skull. Um, and sometimes like just even in a scrappy place, like we're in where we've still got like that old, you know, cardboard photo of big Fanny Annie on the wall that like (laughs) half the time someone leans back and they like knock it over or something like that. (laughs) But like when you first enter the room, there ought to be a vibe and some of that is inherently there because of the room that we've ended up in and other of yes. that are like you know within the context of the recycled reused handed down you know everything that has built up a lot of what's in the space from the you know tables and chairs to the curtains and this kind of thing there's consideration there you know and part of that is about um just uh creating the right vibe and atmosphere and realizing that the details matter and so i guess what, what, I'm, what i'm kind of beating around the bush there is that like i'm not saying that i always achieve all the details that's not what i'm saying you know what i mean like sometimes you've got whatever You sometimes you just don't you know have the money for it or whatever don't have the resources for it kind of thing. do things exactly the way that you'd like but so far as you can you got to make sure that you know the little details of presentation are there and um and not forgotten about because it's the kind of things that people notice and that's one of the that's a that's a really big you know lesson that i took from producing small theater is that you can um like there's so many layers of it's like a russian doll of this phenomenon because you can be so, so on the inside of something that you can't see the forest for the trees and that that is like the curse of the artist in so many ways i think right like you can be you know, sometimes in the midst of recording an album or something. And you're just kind of like so obsessed about like, ah, just like that moment. I really don't like that drum fill or something mm-hmm. like that. But like, okay. you know, take a break, right? Go like leave that project for a month, come back and be like, why was I so freaking obsessed with that drum fill kind of thing, you know? And there's many, many instances of that, I think, as as the artist, whether you're actually creating your work or whether you're creating the presentation of your work. And these teeny little things, right, can be your Achilles heel. And so you can put all this money and um, artistic effort, ingenuity into the actual performance, say, of a play. I'm I'm saying this from absolute personal experience, <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're just like you you get it all together, like you basically kill yourself to get this thing ready for opening night, you know what I mean? And it's like you're you're so happy with it, and you kind of come out and you greet your family in the lobby kind of thing. And what's the first thing they say? But like, oh, uh, but by, by the way, like why um why wasn't there any lobby music? And you're kind of like lobby music what are you talking about, guys? Like, do you have anything to say about the play you just saw that, like, basically, like, you know, took two years off my life to bring to you? Um, but no, what was the first thing the audience experienced, you know, was the fact that they walked into a theater lobby and there was no, like, atmosphere music or something on there. And so you got to be left going, like, wow, that was actually an incredibly small, incredibly important part of that audience experience, you know? Wow. And, um, Yeah, I think that the same can go for venues. But it also, like, it can have its opposite, it can have its corollary with uh, live venues, too, because sometimes, like, the scrappiness of a venue is part of its charm and its set design and its theater, you know? But it's just about, I think, trying to find a way to step outside of uh, your own internal artistic sense and think about the... Um, you know, it's almost like if anyone's familiar with any any theater discipline, it's almost like viewpoints work where you got to kind of try to have that sort of uh, that audience eye as they talk about. Like, even if you're like really within the scene and within the moment, you ought to also be thinking about, you know, how is the audience experiencing this? And uh, that's um I still find that a tough thing to wrestle with and to have both of those brains on if I'm actually producing an event, you know. Uh, but But, you know, that's a skill that I've been able to hone more and more as I spend so much more time just basically like curating what's ultimately other people's performances because I can think about those outside things. Like, okay, guys, like all this is really great, but, you know, your band would actually look better on the stage if the singer stepped over two feet this way you know and that can seem like an absurd thing but it's like what it means is that when someone's taking a picture you know when vincent or Sapallo or whatever comes into the state the place and takes a picture it's going to be a better picture you know mm-hmm. you're going to get the whole band in that picture one of your band members isn't going to look four feet higher than the other band member or you know this kind of thing so and like Yeah, if you don't think about that stuff, all you're left with, there's a film director back in theater school that said that he's like, the job of the director is to make sure you get the shot on the day. That's the job of the director. You know, it's like, it's not about Post production vision. It's not about pre production vision. Those things are all in there, I suppose, but it's about getting the shot on the day. Because if you dismantle the entire thing and then you go back and there's a, a boom mic that's made it into the shot, it's like you can't fix that. I mean, I guess nowadays you, <laughs> you, you could. could. Yeah, nowadays. But that doesn't just, invalidate the point. Yeah, it doesn't invalidate the point. At least I hope it doesn't invalidate the point.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, stay, it's, it's, it's the humility to adopt the audience view as much as possible to achieve success totally yeah and actually you ought to think about that in terms of um the way you put your sets
1: together and stuff too—it's uh, like you know—I like to impart <laughs> impart these <laughs> these observations of mine because they're like they genuinely are as much for me, uh, you know, to try to remember when I'm performing. But uh, people often ask like, you know how long should the sets be, kind of thing. And I used to be like, oh, they're just like two 45 minute sets. But nowadays, I'm a little bit more like, you know, if you're going to have a shorter set, make it the first set. You know, like mm-hmm. we talked about this last night when it was like, let's let's try to end the first set around ten thirty, kind of thing, and. I know my speech went a little bit long last night or whatever kind of thing but the idea is that like you want to you want to give people a really good first set that makes them be like oh man that was really awesome uh but that doesn't totally fill them up you know it's like either today i mean apparently either using baseball or restaurant metaphors so back yeah. to another restaurant it was like you get that like really really good meal but it's not f- it's not good enough to fill your stomach it's not big enough to fill your stomach that's what you want out of a first set people are sort of like oh man that you know that little tagliatelle thing was amazing <laughs> you know what i mean but i definitely also need the second course kind of deal Um, but also because like, yeah, if you give them like a really awesome over one hour first set or kind of thing, then people are going to, especially since, you know, we start our music at nine 30 or whatever, people are going to look at their watches and be sort of like, ah, it's almost 11. Like, actually, why don't we go home? Like it was a really great show. We were totally satisfied by it, but we had enough We're our stomachs are full. Let's go home. So, you got to consider these little things. I also think that if you have guests in your set, you know, you got to be careful about that. Kurt and I were talking about this the other day, too, about how, like, that's a really precarious thing. Like, don't save your guest artists entirely for the second set, unless you announce to the audience in the first set, because people might leave and then they're going to miss the guest artists, you know? But also, like, give them a reason to stick around. So give them something in the second set that they're not going to get in the first set. So it's like a really good strategy, I think, if you've got like, you know, guest horn players or something like that coming up or whatever, or a guest vocalist is like, bring them up for like a tease moment in the first set, you know, and then be like, you'll be seeing more of this person in the second set. And it just, you know, gives the audience more reason to stick around kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Can we... Exit off of the Tyrant Highway for the time being and talk about your music? I would love to do that. Of course. Yeah. So in terms of what is out there in the world, when I think about, okay, what am I going to uh, mention first because I want to hear more about it? The most recent project that's on my radar that you've got in terms of recordings is lonely birthday is that right that's right yeah released in 2021 yeah under your name yeah you've also played several times this year at tyrant with your own band yeah and that is similar in some sense to what is on this album lonely birthday this album's on Bandcamp, it's also on streaming so people can hear that wherever some of this music i've played before with you yeah so i'm familiar with some of those tracks there's a track that's instrumental. It's called Beggar's Theme that I've played with you before. Um there is a short track on the album. It's the last track, Song for Risa. Yeah. That I've also played with you. Yes. And then there's a longer track called Mild September. Yeah. That I can't remember because I have played in your band once or twice. Uh, I can't remember if I played Mild September with you in that situation or if it was somehow worked into Bill's project because it was more epic like that. But I remember playing all of those. Yeah,
1: that's right. No, no, no. Those were played um uh all with uh with my band yeah. when I when I sort of pioneered that. Yeah, that project, which is just the Daniel Dirksen band these days. Um I I'm thinking about rename renaming it in some way. And one of the one of the names I've got right now that is a is a candidate is um uh, Dan Dirksen's, uh, bicameral collapse. So Uh I'm just going to put that out there. So I'm not going to explain that, but if you know what that means, you know, (laughs) what that means, um, uh, but, um, that project was basically brought about to bring some of that material to life. Now the stuff on lonely birthday, you know, I've done a lot of sound design over the years, a lot of sound design work for theater. Um, and a lot of times what that in, has involved for me is is writing music. Uh if you're going to hire me as a sound designer it might be to, you know, source a telephone ring, but it's probably going to be for something more than that because you want a little bit of original music composed or something, right? Mm-hmm. Uh maybe it's played live, maybe it's recorded. So, I've got, you know, a lot of things from over the years, both from shows that I've been hired to sound design and for shows that I've uh produced myself or that we produced ourselves with seven tyrants that where i was mainly a composer and musical director kind of thing um where i ended up with lots of home recordings basically of a lot of these things and they've got like you know (laughs) sometimes like i just you know do this stuff and it's just for me to listen to you know there's some kind of old Bob Dylan quote. I think it's a Bob Dylan quote. It's basically like I, I started writing because no one was playing what I wanted to hear. Uh-huh. Sometimes I sort of feel like that and I've been less concerned over the years that people really hear these songs, but I just kind of like they tickle my fancy. And so I've, hey, I you know would basically go sort of to town with my home recordings, but in a very sort of like ramshackle way kind of deal. So I put a lot of effort into the compositional aspect of these demos basically, but, you know, not a whole lot of consideration into like the, you know, important minutiae of the actual engineering and recording. So I just ended up with like a bunch of these things. And a lot of them were done when I, you know, lived in my place on uh, on uh, East Broadway, where I was like, I lived actually basically right on Broadway. And I think on that particular album, I even credit the traffic on East Broadway for some, yes, of, the, for some, for some <laughs> of the ambient noise. Because <laughs> it's like, you stop and listen, you're like, what's going on there? It's like, no, that's just cars in the background is what that is. Um, so that's what that album is. I just took a handful of these recordings where I really liked the songs, and but also just to me, really, more than anything else, I actually just liked the original recording, the kind of like scrappy, demo-ish sort of version of this recording that kind of got it in its fresh state kind of thing. And I just always wanted to hear that recording not just that tune and so one of my kind of you know small projects during the uh, pandemic times was just to sort of slightly remix these and make them you know good enough that I could release them as a bit of a um a bit of a lo-fi uh home recording type of thing Mm -hmm. so that's what that um uh, project is um I uh I I love all those tunes and uh and I'm, I'm proud of the composing on all those tunes and then they've also all got their like you know super silly little things you know where like so there's at least one track where like some of the stuff is like recorded from the mic on my cell phone kind of stuff you know yeah, um, But um, they're a bunch of fun tunes. And then what I kind of did coming out of the pandemic uh, was to try to try to put together a band to play some of those tunes. And, you know, they're all like personal tunes where I've played basically all the instruments on them kind of thing, but it's all just through layering at home. So I got to put together a band to play that stuff. And then it starts to, you know, take on a world of its own. And I thought, okay, well, you know, actually I ought to get a proper horn section for this. And oh, yeah, dang, that's another tune I wrote that needs a violin. I guess I need a violinist and, you know, this kind of thing. And that's what's kind of grown into the um, Daniel Dirksen band. So, yeah, yeah. there's some, you know, in that material, a lot of it is, um, you know, it, it, some of it's just like my own singer songwriter material. Um, you get, uh, you know, songs like um, uh, A Mild September and, and Song for uh, for Risa, um, which, yeah, yeah were uh, both written about the same person. Um, and you get tunes like The Beggar's Theme and um, The Execution March. Uh, which were written for the Beggar's Opera, you know, one of our big productions about ten years ago was a kind of reinventing of the Beggar's Opera, where I wrote a bunch of original music for that. So those themes came out of that. Surprise, surprise! King Richard is, you know, from a production of Richard the where, Third, right. where I just decided to make one of the monologues into a. What one review described as a Disney uh, (laughs) villain-esque
0: song, which was
1: meant as an insult, but I took it as a compliment. You it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, that's kind of where that uh, band is at. And I've started now in the last couple of performances with that band to also be bringing up some new material that I'm going to be, I'm in the midst of recording, um, that's sort of tailored a little bit to that type of ensemble.
0: Yeah. So you've got yeah, I know that you have new recordings in the works. You mentioned that to me at some point that you're in the progress of putting out another record and like what would feel to me as like the, the best realization of the band that I've stepped out and played in with you that I've heard so far. Like you're working on that right now.
1: I'm working on that right yeah. now. Yeah. That's a mixture. I'm doing some of the recording at home, but most of it I've been doing out of um monarch studios working with dave sakula yeah and uh dave is an absolute joy to work with by the way Mm -hmm. um if you don't already know that but your listeners probably will know that yeah really um really good uh engineer but also just a really sort of like um chill but uh intuitive and incisive kind of approach so it's very like chill about wanting to work with what I want the sound to be like Um, but he'll also you know give a give a sort of like really um, intelligent considered observation when when you know that you know it's going to make the recording better be like well I think I actually think this might be the way to go on that kind of thing. And you'll be like, thank you. You know, it's another forest for the trees thing. You just get somebody to like.
0: Is that his version of putting the lobby music
1: on? Yeah, that's his, that's <laughs> exactly what it is. That's his version of putting the lobby music on, you know. yeah. So it's a great sort of a sounding board for the kind of um, confused moments of our articulating one's vision. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm playing most of the, inst- all the, all the basic instruments myself again. So I started by guitar, going on. Bass. Guitar, bass, yeah, drums. Drums. Went started with the drum recordings, uh, did the piano recordings there too. Um, A lot of the electric guitar stuff I've done at home. So most of the tracking is done on that material. Um, it will be a seven or eight, uh, song, six to eight song album to, just depending on what I decide to actually put through the final thing. And most of that album has not been heard before. There's a neat tune that, um, I wrote uh, recently, at least I, I think it's fun, but it was a, it was one of these tunes I wrote like in muse score, you know what I mean? I was uh-huh. just kind of playing around with notes and just writing and whatever. And then it was like, okay, I guess we'll try and put this on a band. Um, and it, uh, had the working title of paper tyrant, um, which, you know, huh because it was, it was a bit of tyranny on paper, but yeah, hey, also it's tyrant. Uh, and then that we've played with this band a bunch, and that's a fun tune, and that's been sort of like a glimpse onto what the uh, maybe a future musically for that project or some of my material could be. Um, And that's an instrumental piece. But the rest of the stuff on the album, no one's going to have heard because I've never played it. Maybe like one or two of them I might have played at an open mic type of thing. Yeah, Um, But it's almost all stuff, not entirely. It's almost all stuff that I wrote during the pandemic. A lot of it is introspective. I don't know how you felt during the pandemic, but for me, the pandemic was a real sort of like um, uh, self-examination, course correction, like, you know, what have I done with my life? Okay, I did some stuff, but oh, God, oh, but okay, but oh, God, but oh, okay, you know. There was a lot of, like, lying awake at night kind of thing, being like, what have I done, and what do I want to do if this ever ends? Um, uh-huh. So there were some tunes that came out of that that all have this kind of vibe of, of um, yeah, of just, you know, taking myself to task is almost how I want to say it. Hmm. And it's got a, you know, it's got a jazzy, bluesy thing, but also a kind of singer songwriter thing. And then there's a couple tunes that are uh, older tunes, again, from the theater tradition. You know, there's a great uh, duet that I've on there that I've wanted to record for years um, called A Time for Love, which was written for a, a production called Ebenezer, which was our kind of revamp of The Christmas Carol a bunch of Christmases ago um, that we did. And I wrote a bunch of music for that. And it's kind of a duet between. Ebenezer Scrooge and uh, Bell has uh, lost love and I always just thought like you know that's a tune that's a tune I want to record and put on an album so yeah uh, I've got that one on this uh, recording as well and I don't know I had set kind of a target date for having it out before the end of this year but I'm not sure I'm going to hit that
0: <laughs> probably not <laughs>
1: actually i'm pretty sure i'm not getting i'm answer. pretty
0: sure you're yeah. not
1: <laughs> the smile that went across your face was just like that's never not gonna happen yeah yeah <clears throat> uh,
0: but we will look forward to when it does one of your notable past bands is called two apple tobacco i never heard this band though i've i've only checked out the recordings I I didn't hear you play live with them. Yes. In that
1: That was a big, um, I was that, I was my main avenue for, that was my main band for, for years and a main avenue for, um, for kind of creation, a band with a bunch of friends. And, you know, we're still not dead. We're just sort of on like a little bit of a weird, you know, uh, cryo freeze or whatever kind of thing at the moment. And I keep trying to plan a nice uh, reunion. We've actually got a third album. um, uh, That's, Mastered and ready for release. And our second album was never really properly released. So we kind of released an EP. And then, but if you go on to Bandcamp, there's a whole second album there.
0: Is that Squinter's Paradise? Yeah, that's yeah. called
1: Squinter's Paradise. That album was, if anyone's a Pink Floyd fan, that was our, our singer and flautist at the time um, uh, had never heard Dark Side of the Moon. And so it was just one of those things where some people were like, well, we got to sit down and listen to this. And when the great gig in the sky came on with the sort of like super famous, you know, whoa, 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 vocals, it was, it was sort of solo. Um, uh, basically, uh, there was, anyway, it was a strange conversation that came up of like, oh man, I'm, I, you know, uh, I was like, cause I wanted a vocal solo. I was like, it's gotta be like great gig in the sky. And she was like, I've never heard that. Like, oh, okay. oh. Um, and, uh, and then it was like, okay, well, I can't really do that. At least not without squinting. I guess you'll have to write a song about squinting. So uh, then I was like, well, okay, okay. Well, what I'll do is I'll write a whole freaking rock opera about squinting. How about that? And it's basically like a, uh, we called it a panapocalyptic fantasia was the kind of subtitle <laughs> we had for it, but it's basically a kind of like absurd story of like a kind of post, you know, climate change destruction of the world where all the sea levels have risen and all the communities have to flee to the interior. But all that's left in the interior is like super burnt, way overly sunny, kind of like, you know, horrible desertness type of thing. And so all the locals that live in that part of the area, they basically have to squint all the time because there's just like so much sunlight no shade kind of thing. And uh, as a result, their uh, face muscles have actually like deformed and genetically started to alter and that they're like always kind of like squinting, which makes them look like they're always kind of smiling in this way. So when you walk into town, they kind of greet you and they're always kind of smiling or whatever. But it's really not a smile. It's actually a very sinister place. They just kind of, you know, their muscles have evolved that way because they live in the... uh, post-apocalyptic desert and then you get the you know um the corporate rough riders who still live in the only sort of gated green communities who you know hunt these people for sport with their uh with their helicopters and then you get the fact that the animal kingdom has risen up by this point against humanity and basically like uh, the uh, smarter uh, animals of the bunch namely the elephants and the crows of the world have turned on the humans and will launch these regular kind of blitzkrieg attacks on the human settlements and that's basically the premise of the of the story so it's an eight song it was it was, it was supposed to be like right all, all of these like indie rock bands you play a 45 minute set right so the idea was okay we're going to tell a story in 45 minutes it's eight songs 45 minutes kind of rock opera um,
0: so hmm. yeah that's squinter's paradise it's the only album i've ever heard where track one has a skit about disaster insurance
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right a skit about disaster
0: insurance <laughs> <laughs> is totally right that's
1: funny but there is a tune on there that i brought back with the um daniel dirksen band called pure I ridiculousness played it
0: Pure ridiculousness yeah i yeah. played it with you
1: <laughs> yeah that's right we did play that one yeah because i need that's the that's where i needed uh gabe to do the the, the violin the duo violin with me which isaac isaac's been doing recently yeah yeah and uh, that's one of my favorite things to bring up with the dan dirksen man these days because um thomas holden who mm-hmm. obviously we both work with a lot in noel um wrote some uh embellished the horn arrangements on that really uh wonderfully and so that tune in my opinion has never sounded better than it does these days when we put it on live
0: yeah yeah it's yeah you have you have like such a a command of your own material and that might sound like trivial to you like of course i do like it's my songs it's my stuff but you know sometimes you see people who they put out their own stuff and they're very kind of sheepish about it you know and they they don't they don't want to just to stick their head up and say anything about it or to talk about the story behind it or anything but you you tell the story of your own music here and your own songs and the you craft them in such an epic way but you also just you embody and you deliver the story of it so well in such an epic way and it like speaks to your multidisciplinary training right like being being an actor and being a musician and you just you just own your material and and you get, you you go all out on it. I love that <laughs> oh jeez thank you i mean <laughs>
1: Uh, that's quite a compliment well I don't know what to say on that except that like at this point I've conceded to the fact that this is just who I am and what I do so uh when when some harebrained crazy vision idea that I have makes it out into the world and I like it like there's you know I don't know for me at least there's no greater pleasure than that it just it feels awesome to kind of smile and be like wow okay boom (laughs) like that that exists you know uh and i like it at least hopefully uh hopefully other people will too you know
0: yeah i think that's an awesome place to end it we covered a lot of fun ground man i want to thank you again for for joining me on the show i had a great time chatting with you
1: oh totally yeah uh i had a great time too
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Rhythm Changes podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to become a member for free today at rhythmchanges.ca. Sign up, you'll get the free weekly email from me. We'll keep rolling. I'll write to you every Tuesday going into 2024. We will have new episodes of this show coming next year as well. I wanna thank you for sticking around for any of the 80 episodes we have done so far. I can't wait to share some conversations with you next year. So until I talk to you again, have a great one.